two in a row from Horatius Bonar. Again, I think it's a conspiracy to use hymns which bring the speaker to tears. Again, what a glorious, glorious hymn. I'd like to continue tonight speaking about patterns. As I said this morning, to the Greek mind, the Western mind, Gentile mind, prophecy is prediction and fulfillment. And it is that. And to the Hebraic mind, it's much more they take also patterns. And in that see this picture, this rich, full picture of God and his immutability. How he doesn't change and how that is a it shows forth how God will always deal with mankind and gives us an understanding of what's to come because we see what has been and that truth remains the same. This morning we spoke to the patterns which speak of our need for a Savior. Tonight I want to speak to those patterns which show forth that disobedience is costly. In the church today, there is this sense where we can play with sin. We say we believe the Bible, but every time we're disobedient or we play fast and loose with commandments, that's an outward manifestation. We don't really believe it or we don't fear the consequences. Because of that, the church is weak. We have lives that are defiled by sin with a winking at misbehavior, slothfulness, and laziness. The brothers and sisters, the scripture is clear. Disobedience is costly. We've been brought to life. The one who died that we might have life wants us to have it abundantly. So we're going to look to some of the patterns. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And while you're turning there, I'm going to quote a single verse out of, from the prophet Hosea. Isaiah 14.9 says, Who is wise? Let him realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. Is it possible for a, a believer to be rebellious? You think I'm rebellious? I do. I don't like being rebellious, but at times my desire for life in this world overcomes the working and the striving of the spirit within me. Pray for me over that. I think we obviously all stumble with that. But we don't want to dive headlong into sin. You know, uh, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, it tells us, look at all those saints in chapter 11, the hall of faith. We have this great cloud of witnesses that surround us. So let's, Set aside every weight which slows us down and encumbers us. And let's discard this besetting sin, the sin that so easily entangles us. It's singular, the sin. In the context of the letter to the Hebrews, it's all about, do you believe God? Is it faith? It's a lack of faith. That's a sin we're speaking of here. And it can prevent us from running the race which has been set before us that we're told about in Hebrews 12, verse 1. In 1 Corinthians 10, we're going to look back at some things that took place in the Old Testament. And it's going to speak to us. The Apostle Paul is going to say, look at these, look at this. I don't want you unaware, look at this. So let's read in the uh, 
10th chapter of the first letter to the Corinthians. Starting with verse 1, Paul's telling us to avoid Israel's mistakes. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were all drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. This passage is looking back at the Israelites, but it's speaking to our hearts as believers. They drank with the spiritual rock, which was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. It doesn't say he wasn't pleased. It says he was not well pleased. But there were some consequences. They were laid low in the wilderness. Verse 6, now these things happened as examples for us so that we do not crave evil things as they also craved. Do not be idolaters as some of them were and as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did and 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. He reminds us again here. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction. You know, Paul's including himself in there. Our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, you judge what I say. He calls him my beloved. Again, I, I would submit to you that this is looking back at what the Israelites did, but it's speaking to believers. We're going to look at patterns like we did this morning. We've looked at the pattern of Mephibosheth with regard to salvation, how he pictures those who need a Savior. I'm going to look at uh, some pictures this morning, and we're going to primarily, this all transpires in the, the books of the law, the books of Moses and Joshua. And in a, in a general sense, we can look at each of those books speak to us. In Genesis, of course, God is introduced in the majesty of his, his creation. But Genesis is primarily a book about the inadequacy of man, the fall of man. And if Genesis is primarily about the inadequacy of man, Exodus is all about the provision of God and his delivering power. Exodus, we're set apart. We're made holy, separate, set apart for God. And one theologian says, chapter 20, verse 26, is probably the, the key verse. It talks about how God says, I will set you apart as a people, people who are mine. And in the Hebrew, that, that word mine is... It, it's very inclusive. It, it covers all tenses. It's, God is saying, you were, you are, and you will be mine. Leviticus is all about taking confusion, the separateness and apartness, and creating a method where there can be communion with God again. Numbers is that we must trust God. They wandered in the wilderness because of disobedience and lack of faith in God. They had enough faith to leave Egypt, but not enough to enter the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy, the second law, as its name implies, is a, is a history lesson 
some of the young ones who were under 20 but still remember. It's a, it's a, it's a, a refresher for them. Those who were born in the wilderness, it's, it's a new lesson, but it's Moses. It's his last sermon. He's reminding them of God's provision and promise, and it looks forward to the land of promise and the land of rest. Finally, Joshua are the instructions about entering the land. Four chapters on entering the land, two chapters at the end of the morning, and everything in the middle is a battle. What you need to do to have a victory, and it's a lesson for us. But at the end, Joshua does give some warnings. Guard against these pitfalls. And the warning, if you would dwell in the land, be obedient. Well, I said we're going to look at patterns. So let's look at the Israelites. Their travel into Egypt, their existence in Egypt, and then as they came out and beyond. And we'll see how that pictures and patterns for us the church. You know, there's an interesting verse in Ezekiel, the fourth chapter, makes a statement that Israel is God's firstborn son. Wait a minute. Jesus is the prototokos, the preeminent one, the firstborn of all creation, the only begotten son of God. Nevertheless, in Ezekiel 4, verse 22, we're told Israel is the firstborn son of God. Normally we think of Israel as the wife of God. Titus 2.14 says that we're a possession of Christ. Theologians point out that for the traveling down into Egypt, there were 70 descendants of Abraham who went into Egypt, juxtaposed against the 70 nations that are listed in Genesis. There's a separation there. And we're separate from the world as well once we're in the church. You know, the subsequent offspring uh, of the Israelites who were born in Egypt were born into bondage. We're born in sin. We're born in bondage to the flesh and to sin and death. And the Israelites were, were experiencing death at the hands of the Egyptians. They were putting, designed to put together all the, the male children as they were born. Of course, we're spiritually dead. We're born dead. Our spirit is not made alive until Christ gives us a spirit to quicken our spirit. God called the Israelites out of Egypt and out of bondage unto himself. And God calls us out of the spiritual bondage in which we find ourselves. God provides a way for them and for us. He raised up Moses. Moses a type. Christ the perfect fulfillment of that type. And through Moses, he gave the Israelites the Passover. The slaying of a year old lamb without blemish, taking its blood and painting the doorpost and the lintel. You know, we look back, we can obviously see the, the cross the blood on the two doorposts and overhead. And you see a cross. That cross was perfected at Calvary when the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was crucified there. When the Israelites put their faith, their trust in God and were obedient and painted their doorposts with the blood of the Lamb, they were protected from the death angel. When we trust God and take the blood of Christ, apprehend it, we're protected from the second death. You know, the, the first act of faith that the Israelites were called upon to exhibit after the Passover was, well, they were to pass through the waters of the Red Sea. You know, the first call for a believer after they've been born again is to pass through the waters of baptism. We tend to want to put it off. You know, our brothers and sisters over at the Baptist Church here in Pomona, they're 
Fairplex, they, they've started taking to setting up pools so that somebody can save. They invite them to come right down and get baptized. And, you know, I'm, I'm friendly with the pastor there. Glenn asked me, he says, do you, what do you think of it? Are you offended by that? Do you think it's right? I said, brother, I think you're right in accord with Scripture. If they understand what it means to be saved, there's no reason for them not to pass through the waters of baptism. They can understand it. They don't need six weeks of lessons about baptism. The Israelites went right out, and you know they arrived at the shore of that Red Sea. The Egyptian army was behind them. The sea was in front of them. It seemed like a barrier to them which prevented their escape. And for some sad reason, when a believer is confronted with the idea of baptism, maybe they think it's of no import, but there's a barrier that tends to keep them away from it. You know what was a barrier? It seemed to be a barrier of escape. When they passed through it and it closed back up, it was a barrier, wasn't it? It prevented, it made impossible for them to return the way they came back into Egypt, which is a type of the world. And for a believer, when they pass through the waters of baptism, that should mark our separation from the world. We're buried with Christ and we raised, we're raised anew in Christ. You know, Paul, you know, what did Paul say? He said, you know, dead men don't sin. When a man dies, he doesn't sin anymore. And that's the idea. We die with Christ. You know, William McDonald put it this way. He said, Christ didn't just die for me. He died as me. And speaking to this impact, this effect, that when Christ died, for my sins. It was as if I died in my sins and they're gone and gone away, but it was done with the one who can come back to life, Christ. And that's what Paul says. It's not me living, it's Christ living in me. We're resurrected, a new creation. If one died for all, then all have died. And we're born again in Christ. You know, when the Israelites came out of the Red Sea at the far side, now that they passed through this barrier, the race which was set before them was now available. Their obedience in going through the Red Sea now allowed them, you know, they went to Horeb and to, through Sinai and worked their way on up towards Kadesh Barnea. Once a believer goes through the waters of baptism, that first act of obedience now allows them to start down that race, that course which has been set before them. God sets it before each of us. Many of the things are similar, but we each have a different course that He gives. But until we're obedient, we're not going to travel down that course. You know, we read that there was a mixed multitude that went up with the Israelites. They saw what was going on, and I guess they weren't terribly thick people. They thought, oh, we ought to hitch our wagon to these Israelites. You know, the theologians tell us, well, that's where the problem came from. They're the ones who lusted after you know, cucumbers and leeks and onions and, and fish and whatnot. Certainly at Nehemiah there was an issue and they were separated out, but I, I don't see what the theologians are talking about there. I got looking into this a little bit and um, you know there's this duality. God always invited foreigners to come in. He said the only thing that separates the foreigners from you is that flesh that needs to be cut off, the circumcision. And you bring them in and they become part and parcel with you. Mixed multitude. Multitude the easy word, rab, in, in Hebrew, it means many, it's, it's that simple, but mixed, the Hebrew word is get rev, 
and it appears 11 times in the Old Testament, once in uh, Exodus, once in Nehemiah. Both times it's translated as mixed. There's nine times it appears in the book of Leviticus, and it all has to do with leprosy, and it's talking about fabric. In there, all nine times, it is interpreted as woof. And it sounds like a, like a dog speaking, but it's a weaving term, woof. It's, it's, it's a, it's a, it tells us which direction the fabric, the threads are going. Its counterpart is the warp. The warp are the threads that hang down from the loom, and it determines how long the bolt of fabric's going to be. The woof are the, the transverse fabric, the ones side to side in the weaver's loom. And when the two of them are woven together, well, you could take the thread separately, the woof and the warp, and put them on the floor. You just have a tangle of threads. But when they're woven together and integrated properly, there is a thing of strength and beauty. Now, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, but I don't... The ones who rebel seem to be Israelites. These people may not have had as much knowledge as the Israelites did. I, I don't know. But I look at the church and I see that we're a mixed multitude. Whosoever will may come. You know, of every tongue and tribe we're told in Revelation, and too many to be numbered. And the same thing, if we're woven together and we're using our talents the way that the Lord intended them, we'll be a thing of not only great beauty, but great strength, accomplishing the things that the, the Holy Spirit has set before us to accomplish. Well, this group that wandered through the wilderness, and they were tested, and of course we're wandering through this life, and we're tested. God sent them water and manna to sustain them and to give them strength to endure, and God sends us the Holy Spirit to give us strength to overcome. God wanted them to go into rest, to enter into Canaan, and God wants us to enter into rest. And I'm going to tell you, I do not see and I do not think you can make the scripture say that entering into Canaan is the same as saints entering into heaven. And I'll tell you why I feel that way. But I think that the rest we're supposed to enter into is a life of trust and obedience in which the Spirit has freedom in our hearts and our lives to give us the power to have victory over sin and to be an effective worker for our Lord in this life. You know, every day God asks us the same question. He asks every person the same question every day. Always invented. He asks it in a different way every day, but the question is always the same. Sometimes it's easy, and sometimes we're faced with this question that we're overwhelmed, almost feel we have no ability to answer it properly, but the question is this. God says, do you trust me? Well, we're going to see, look at how the Israelites uh, did. Let's go to Numbers, Numbers chapter 13 and Numbers chapter 14. And we're going to look at um, what transpired as they had come out of Egypt with the benefit of the Passover, the blood of the Lamb. They passed through the waters. They had gone to... Uh, Mount Horeb. They had received the Ten Commandments. They had pledged themselves. They had denied direct contact with God, but they worked their way up to Kadesh Barnea, right on the threshold of entering into Canaan. And that's where we're going to pick up this, this picture and see what happened with the Israelites. We know the story, but let's, let's look at the verses individually. 
Numbers 13, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men, so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So Moses sent them. And he told them, go out and spy out the land and tell us whether you know, the, the people be few or many, whether they be weak or strong, the cities or open villages or, or fortified cities, whether it be a good land or not. And he said, oh, and bring us back some of the fruit. So, of course, they went. Twelve of them went up and spied out the land. Coming back they, through the Valley of Eshcol at the time of the first harvest of the grapes, they, they got a cluster of grapes that was so large we know they had to put it on a pole and carry it between two men. That's a symbol of the ministry of tourism in Israel today. Jumping down to uh, verse 27, you know, they come back, they speak to Moses and the entire congregation, it says in 26, but starting with verse 27, thus they told him and said, we went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. They learned their giants. They were fearful. I think they had good reason. I mean, we're told one of the kings had a bed that was 13 feet, 6 inches long. But Caleb tries to quiet them in verse 30 uh, before Moses. Um, verse 31. But the men who had gone up with him said... We are not able to go up against this people, for they are too strong for us. So they gave out to some of the, to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land which devours its inhabitants. And all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight, and so we were in their sight. The Nephilim, uh, gigantes, transliterated giants, but what it really means is earthbound, the fallen ones. We read of them in Jude or Genesis chapter 6. We're kind of hard on them, but they had good reason to be fearful. Of course, they'd seen all the miracles that, that God had done on their behalf. What are they going to do with this fear? Well, we read about it in the next verse, in the first verse of chapter 14. Then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. All the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us to this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, Let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Their fear didn't drive them to God to seek his protection, his guidance. No, it, it drove them to go back into the world, in spite of all they'd seen. Moses and Aaron fell on their face, and they're trying to convince them, and Joshua and Caleb are pleading with them that the Lord is able, he'll be able to deliver them. But the, the congregation, have it. they pick up stones, they're going to stone them. we read down in verse 10, Then the glory of the Lord appeared in the tent of meeting to all the sons of Israel, that finally got their attention. The Lord said to Moses, How long will this people spurn me, and how long will they not believe me? Despite all the signs which I performed in their midst, 
I will smite them with pestilence and dispossess them. I will make you into a nation greater and mightier than they. The Lord is long-suffering, but at some point, his wrath will come forth. Verse 13, But Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, for by your strength you brought this people out from their midst, and they will tell it to the inhabitants of this land. They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of this people, for you, O Lord, are seen eye to eye while your cloud stands over them. And you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Now if you slay this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, because the Lord could not bring this people into the land which he promised them by oath, therefore he slaughtered them in the wilderness. But now, I pray, let the power of the Lord be great, just as you have declared. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgressions. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generations. We're going to see that's what happens. Moses continues, Pardon, I pray, the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your loving kindness, just as you have also forgiven this people from Egypt, even until now. Moses pleads for him, even as Amos had pled for Judah, for the Lord to relent. Verse 20, so the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. You know, we, we talked this morning about it's so easy to read over a passage, read some words, and not take in the full meaning. Listen to that. So the Lord said, I have pardoned them according to your word. He's forgiven them of their transgressions, but there's still consequences, just like David in his repentance and in his his cry of repentance in Psalm 51. Broken heart, and yet the Lord told him, the sword will not depart from your family. There's consequences for disobedience. Verse 21, the Lord continues, But indeed, as I live, all the earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Surely all the men who have seen my glory and my signs, which I performed in Egypt and in the wilderness, yet have put me to the test these ten times, and if not listened to my voice, shall by no means see the land which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who spurned me see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he entered, and his descendants shall take possession of it. Lord continue, Now the Amalekites and the Canaanites live in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out to the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, How long shall I bear with this evil congregation who are grumbling against me? I have heard the complaints of the sons of Israel, which are, they are making against me. Say to them, As I live, says the Lord, just as you have spoken in my hearing. We talked about it this morning. You know, the Lord knows all. He knows our thoughts. He hears what we say. Just as you have spoken in my hearing, so I will surely do to you. Your corpses will fall in this wilderness, even all your numbered men according to your complete number, from 20 years old and upward, who have grumbled against me. Surely you will not come into the land in which I swore to settle you. 
except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, the son of Nun. Your children, however, whom you said would become prey, I will bring them in. And they will know the land which you have rejected. But as for you, your corpses will fall in this wilderness. Your sons will be shepherds for 40 years in the wilderness, and they will suffer for your unfaithfulness until your corpses lie in the wilderness. You know, the Lord had given them many things to observe. And they ended up with a lot of feasts, services, so to speak. And you know what the most common one was in the wilderness? Funerals. Somebody said it took like 85 funerals a day to bury that lot as they wandered for 38 years. Deuteronomy 2 tells us it's 38 years from here that they wander in the wilderness. Continuing in verse 34, according to the number of days which you spied out the land, 40 days for every day you shall bear your guilt for a year, even 40 years, and you will know my opposition. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this evil congregation who are gathered together against me, in this wilderness they shall be destroyed, and there they will die. It goes on to say that as for the men who gave the evil report, the ten of them, they died immediately of a plague. When Moses spoke these words to the people, they repented. They were heartbroken. Verse 40, in the morning, however, they rose up early and went up to the ridge of the hill country, saying, here we are. We indeed have sinned, but we will go up to the place which the Lord has promised in disobedience, they did not go into the land when they were told to. And now in disobedience, they're going to attempt to go into the land when they were told not to go in. They just can't get it right. They're presuming upon God. But he's sworn, as I live, he said. There's no repentance from that. Moses tells them, if the Lord's not with you, you're going to fail. And indeed they did. They were struck down. And indeed, they wandered for 38 years. Their children had to shepherd their parents and grandparents into the grave. Well, we're looking for the rain, right? We don't want big wind, big thunder, no rain. And how does this relate to us? I've already said, unless you do violence to the text, I don't think you can begin to make the crossing of the Jordan and entering into Canaan a picture of saints entering heaven. So what does it mean? You know, when the Israelites entered Canaan, they still had to fight battles, some of which they lost due to disobedience and due to negligence. I mean, the first battle in there is Jericho, right? But the Lord wins the battle. They go in and put the sword into those that survived. Immediately after that, they send a few thousand men up against Ai. And when they're beat down, Joshua, he's upset with the Lord. What's going on? How are we going to do this if you're not with us? And the Lord just don't even talk to me about it. You've got nothing to complain about. You go back and take care of the sin in the camp, the sin of Achan, taking the dedicated things. But there was a second problem, and it was negligence. Joshua did not seek out the Lord before they went. He presumed. You know, I fear that a lot sometimes. Lord, am I, I, I'm going forward, I think, in good faith, but I haven't always stopped to see if I'm really still moving forward according to the will of the Lord. 
So they had battles that they fought for some time to subdue the land. That's not a picture of heaven. I mean, you do understand we're not going to fight any battles in the eternal state, right? That would puncture the type. The Israelites were protected by the Passover. They came through the sea. They didn't go back into the world. They failed to enter the promised land because of their lack of faith. Their faith in God was weak. They had enough faith to be saved by the Passover. They had enough faith to go through the sea. You know, they stood at Sinai and, you know, when they stood before the mountain, they vocally pledged themselves to God. But they fell short when they were told to go into the land. One more reason why this can't be a picture of heaven. Moses didn't enter in either, did he? Moses was good enough to make it to the Mount of Transfiguration. Do we think he's not going to be in heaven? You know, in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, there's again reference back to this. We really don't have time to go, to go there and spend any time. Um, Hebrews, maybe, maybe next time I speak, we'll talk about the warnings throughout Hebrews. Uh, this is a letter again to believers, and it's this warning about lack of faith, about falling short and not trusting God. Vernon McGee spoke of Hebrews as the salad bowl of the New Testament because it's full of lettuce. Let us, let us, let us, let us. He's in, he includes himself in the whole, throughout the book. It talks about the peril of unbelief. It talks about our great high priest who passed through the heavens, who's endured every temptation yet without failing. We have every reason to full, have full faith and confidence in him who is able to succor us, to meet our every need. In Hebrews chapter 4, Paul speaks about the believer's rest. He talks about creation, how God has rested from his creation. God didn't stop working. It's just that work was finished. And he's moved on to other stuff. Christ has rested from his work on the cross. But he's still busy. Again, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, he ever liveth to make intercession on our behalf. I think we see him pictured perhaps in Revelation chapter 12 as the angel with the censer with adding the incense to the prayers of the saints as it goes down to the Father. In Hebrew chapter 4, he speaks about Joshua. If Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So I submit again that the rest in Canaan for us pictures those who have enough faith to go forward in life, fully reliant upon God in the direction of His Spirit. And even when we face giants, so to speak, we trust in God that He'll deliver us. And every time that we show faith, the reward is we see the hand of the Lord working. The greater the obstacle, the greater blessing we see when the Lord delivers. If we're never delivered from anything except simple little things, our faith will be small and weak. You know, James 2.22, as I've said before, to me answers the issue of faith without works being dead. No, it's when you act in faith, even though you're fearful, the reward again is that you see the hand of God work, and our faith is then 
perfected and made strong. I said this morning that heaven is a real place and so is the lake of fire. Well, I think the life of rest is a real place for us and it's in this world. There's going to be another rest, the eternal rest. You know, we've, those of us who are in Christ, we've had the penalty of sin removed through the blood of Christ. We have the power of sin removed through the power of the Spirit working in us now. In our glorified state, we'll have we'll, the very presence of sin will be removed. But in the meantime, we need the power of the Spirit. We need a humble heart. We need to have God-sized faith to move forward. And if we move forward in faith, God shows up. If we trusted God enough to save us, we should trust Him enough to sustain us through the trials and tribulations of life. And how we live our lives should be an outward manifestation that we trust God. That's always evidenced by obedience. When we're disobedient, again, we're saying we don't really believe what God says is wrong or we don't fear the consequences. If the message this morning to the unbeliever was be a Mephibosheth, come and eat at the king's table forever, the message tonight to the believer is be a Caleb, be a Joshua, enter into rest, have victorious, vigorous life in the power of the Spirit. Answering that question when God asks it. Yes, Lord, I trust you. That's easy to say when the obstacle's small, and I confess it's, it's frightening sometimes. But he is faithful, even when we're not. Father, we thank you again for your word, for the comfort it gives us through the perseverance and encouragement of your scripture. We see those who struggled and fell, and you picked them up. You propelled them on to victory. We see the hall of faith. Some of those in the hall of faith had lives with great failures in them. That they finished well. You honored them in the hall of faith and held them up to us as witnesses. Witnesses to your faithfulness. Help us, Father, to look upon what you provided for us to listen to the Spirit as He guides us into truth and to move forward with confidence, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, in Your loving kindness. You've told us You know the end from the beginning and the plans You have to prosper us and not to harm us. Help us to walk every day, living out lives which demonstrate we do trust You. And when we fall, Pick us up, Father. We look at our nation and we see it in disarray. Sin. What you warned us about through the prophet Isaiah. There are those who are calling evil good and good evil. The princes are pleased by the behavior of those who are sitting in their realm. And the church is not watching. A weak we're caught up in the life that we're living in a world that is not our own. Help us to be your people who confess our sins, turn from our wicked face, heal our land after you heal our hearts, 
after we as your people are submitted to you. We love you. If weakly at times, but we love you. We love your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us. Help us to finish well. Help us to reflect your glory. Help us to pray for one another, for our brothers and sisters throughout this land. There are many gatherings all around us that gather in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Give them victory too, Father. Raise up your people as a believing, praying people that there might be a mighty harvest in these closing days as you prepare to send your son to gather his bride. Oh, that we might see a harvest. We know that's your desire, Father. We pray that we would be made ready to be your servants, that all things we might give glory to you and to your son by our obedience as well as by our lips. This we commit to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.